Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. Now what we normally do before we go into the New Testament, I like to also break it up with the Old Testament. And we've been sharing from the proverb of the day. Uh, today it's only one verse, you don't have to turn there. You're going to have to trust me on this one. The proverb of the day is going to be Proverbs 16.9. And it says this, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A man's heart plans his way. God's given us choice. He's given us the opportunity to make decisions. He's given us free will to decide. Every day that you get up, you make decisions about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to do. But the Bible says that the Lord directs his steps. And it's, it's so neat because there's such a, in, in the Bible, when you look at doctrine, you say, well, there is, God is sovereign. He has control over his, his creation. Yes, he does. But the Bible also said that there's free will. Well, how do we reconcile the two? And we're going to see this in the life of Paul, and we have seen it in the life of Paul. But it's sort of like if you have a quarter. On any given day, if you take a quarter out of your pocket, somebody says, well, describe the quarter. You say, well, it's heads. Well, on another given day, you could take out that same quarter and somebody said, describe the quarter. And they could say, well, there's an eagle on the back. It's tails. But whether you flip that coin and it becomes heads or tails, it's the same quarter. And it's the same thing with God. God is sovereign. God has control. God doesn't look at, at, the, at the world in the Middle East and saying, oh, no, what do I do? This place is a mess. He's sovereign. But at the same time, he allows man to make his choices. So that's kind of neat. And we're going to see that with the Apostle Paul's life, he made choices. Uh, God said to him, you're going to go to Rome. Trust me, you're going to go and you're going to witness to Rome. But when things got a little tough during the trial in Caesarea, Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, if he didn't appeal to Caesar, would God still get him to Rome sovereignly? Absolutely. But Paul made that choice at that particular time, right? So you can see the balance there. What we saw the last time was the Apostle Paul's last witness before the Roman court in Caesarea. And today we're going to see the journey to Italy and its temporary derailment. Chapter 27, starting with verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snittus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lesia. My prayer before I was to teach this was, Lord, help me to do this justice, because there's so much really interesting points that we can take from this and bring it into our life. And the funny thing is I start studying on Sunday and sometimes Monday and I look at the text like this and it's just a bunch of sailing routes and I think, Lord, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to teach? And by Thursday or Friday, he comes up with something for me. It, it never fails. I hate when he does that to me. I wish he'd just do it on Sunday. <laughs> 
But the point is that um, we're going to pull a lot out of this. A few um, you know, historical notes. Julius the centurion. A centurion was a Roman uh, military commander who had uh, command over 100 men. Uh, he was from the Augustan regiment, which means he was, they were an elite unit. And we can say, well, Rome knew the importance of their prisoner. They put these uh, you know, very skilled elite bands to guard Paul as he went to Rome. But I would say this, that sovereignly God knew that he was going to get Paul to Rome. You see that other side of the quarter. And apparently Luke, he, he says we. We know that Dr. Luke wrote this book, and he says we a lot. Apparently they allowed Luke to go with him. Is it possible that Luke was his traveling physician? You know, they did give Paul some liberties. Uh, so Luke was with him and also Aristarchus. These were two friends with him during his most difficult times. A little chronicling of the sailing route, which is a little bit of topography here. Uh, if you take Caesarea and you go north to Sidon, uh, that's basically modern-day Lebanon. So, you know, you're going up the coast of the Mediterranean. And then they sailed west between Cyprus and South Turkey. So they, under the belly of Turkey and north of Cyprus, and we talked a lot about the Cypriots and the island of Cyprus. They, they you know, went along the coast there. Uh, and then they sailed uh, south to Crete, which was an island a little bit further southwest in the Mediterranean. Now, the reason why they're explaining this is because it was safer to sail along the coasts than directly to Italy in the open seas. And we're going to see how that, that makes more sense as we go further into the story. Verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the thing spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So verse 9 talks about the time of the fast being over. The fast was the day of atonement, and that was a calendar marker for you. Uh, it's basically in the area of uh, September or October, depending on where the, uh, the Jewish month coincided with the, the pagan uh, system there. And what basically is happening here is that anything, if you sailed from late September in that area uh, to late February, it would be very dangerous. So there were four major concerns regarding this trip. Number one, they needed a protective harbor, and this is going to come into play. It was a big ship, and whatever harbor they were into, it had to be protective of the ship. The second point that was important was that they had to have a harbor that provided essential supplies for the ship, the crew, the prisoners, and everybody on board. So it narrows it down a little bit. Three, they needed a safe route to sail through. That was very important, especially in those days. And four, they needed to beat the, the late fall winter storm period. So four concerns. So the helmsman or the captain with Julius, the commander's okay, chose certain routes and certain towns based on these temporal concerns. Verse 10, a situation arises. Paul perceives the journey will end in disaster. When you're in Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are going to have a premonition in the strictest sense of the word. You're going to have a, a spiritual understanding. You're going to know things that are not necessarily of the temporal or of this earth. 
And although the centurion treated Paul well, he chose to go with the earthly wisdom of the captain. Worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. To oversimplify it, earthly wisdom is based on what is seen. Spiritual wisdom or godly wisdom is often based on things that are not seen. Often decisions made spiritually can initially look ridiculous, and Paul's assertions certainly seem that way. What's the problem, Paul? Everything, look, the weather's beautiful, the sun's out, the the seas seem to be calm. What's your problem? Okay, they don't understand that this man is in tune with God directly. And two, Paul had a basic foreboding of danger, but it wasn't clearly revealed until later on in the trip. You see, God gives his people a sense of guidance, and sometimes God gives his people a sense of foreboding, but oftentimes it's not completely revealed until later on. Did you ever get a, a, a sense about something, a feeling about something, and you know you believe it's from the Lord, and you know you, you just you can't put your finger on it. That term, I can't put my finger on it. When I was a kid, I used to like to watch Spider-Man. My spidey senses are tingling. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm, I'm starting to you know. And then later on in life, maybe a, a week later or a month later, God reveals something to you. He gave you a sense of danger or a sense of foreboding, but later on he makes it more clear and the puzzle pieces start to come together. Now, in 1 Peter, we see that when Peter is explaining the prophets, the prophets, God talked to the prophets directly. He said, tell my, my people, the children of Israel, this is what's going to happen. They, you know, there was prophecy there. But even in 1 Peter, it says the prophets had a a sense of what was going on, but they also didn't have the whole picture. They were blown away when the whole thing with the the resurrection and and Jesus dying for our sins, when that all came together, the the prophets, I could just picture the prophets, the angels, all the creatures sitting at the edge of their seats watching the whole thing. Oh no, Jesus is being crucified. This is bad. And God's like, just give it some time. Wait. And then he rises from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures and ascends into heaven. Oh, it all makes sense now. He died for their sins. That's great. And First Peter kind of exemplifies that. So the prophets had a sense of what was going on, but even their picture wasn't completely revealed until uh, much later. Verse 12, it says, The majority advised to set, st- to set sail. And we're going to see later in the story that it's not always good to follow the majority because they were wrong. Verse verse 13, so I would say that everything seemed like smooth sailing uh, for a while, and it seemed to be okay. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocliden. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Serta sands, they struck sail and were so driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So there's a storm brewing, uh, so to speak, and several drastic measures had to be taken to save the ship and its passengers. Verse 14, here's where it gets exciting. (laughs) There was a tempestuous wind. In the Greek, the word is called tuphonikos, where we get the word in English typhoon or a violent cyclone. So you're starting to see the severity of of even the winds, and there's a, a, 
uh, a, um, a geographical terminology where the, the winds come off the mountain and, and high pressure and low pressure, and all of a sudden, like that, the storm uh, can arise out of something that seems rather peaceful. In addition, they had a name for it. It was called the Eurocliden. It's actually a hybrid word that means a nor'easter, which stirs up broad waves. So not only do you have this awful storm, but now the waves are starting to kick up. In verse 15, the storm was too great to control the wheel. And the wheel, okay, if you've ever seen the, those ship's wheels, it controlled the mechanism which controlled the stern. Uh, on the stern of the ship was the rudder, this big flap that would help the, the ship to steer. So they had to let the wheel go because the storm was too powerful and let the ship drive itself. Kind of reminds me of if, you know, I'm not really a, a seafaring person, so uh, I don't know if you are, but maybe I'll help you out with this. Do you remember how many people have seen Gilligan's Island? <laughs> Who hasn't, right? In the beginning, it's now this is a tale of a fateful trip. I don't know the rest of it. But when things started going bad in Gilligan's Island in that little salt storm, all of a sudden you see the minnow is caught by the storm, and then they show the wheel and it just keeps spinning and nobody can grab it. So sort of, I guess maybe that's what happened over here. But on a serious note, how many times in life, in your life, have the storms taken your ship? If you think of a ship being your life, right? How many times in your life has the storms come and all of a sudden you've got to let the ship drive because there's nothing you can do? We've heard the expression, Jesus take the wheel, and a popular song was uh, made from that. But, you know, we say Jesus take the wheel, but sometimes we don't let the wheel go completely. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I can't take the wheel if the two of us are next to each other. One of us can only be on the wheel at one time. And sometimes we say, Jesus, take the wheel, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're still white-knuckling it, you know? We don't want to let go of that wheel, right? And there's just sometimes in our life when our ship is being tossed to and fro by the waves, and we have to let go. We have to trust that if we let go of the wheel, the Lord's going to take the wheel at the right time. And I have another question for you. How quickly do our lives go and take a, a, a sharp turn in life? How quickly does it go from verse 13 in your life where it's smooth sailing, is a nice breeze, it's beautiful out, to the Eurocliden in verse 14? With, in the age of technology, it's just, it can be just a phone call away. I remember uh, a few months ago, uh, my stepfather uh, you know, I was entertaining friends at my home and I got a phone call and I'm like, oh, it's my mom. Hi, mom. She's like, Joe, something happened to Ray. They're taking him to the hospital. I'm like, what? You know, so I, sh I sh shooed my friends out of the house and I got in my car and my wife and I and my son, we went to the hospital. You know, something disastrous happened. And oftentimes in your life, it's a phone call, right? You, you say, oh, phone call. I'm going to answer that. You call her ID. It's a friend, somebody nice that you want to talk to. You pick up the phone. So-and-so is in the hospital. Or what about when the doctor calls, right? When the doctor calls and says, we, we have your test results, we need you to come into the office. Oh, why can't you just tell me over the phone? Because we need you to come into the office, right? How, and, and then, you know, in, in New Jersey, it takes two weeks to get into the office. <laughs> so you're, you're sick to your stomach for two weeks until you know what's going on. But it's true, in verse 13, smooth sailing, everything is smooth. And then verse 14, it's the Eurocliden. And it's the same thing in our life, right? Like that your life can take a turn. You know, I often pray, uh, you know, the biggest part of my prayers is that, Lord, prepare me for what's around the corner. 
Because that's what life is about. The things that you can see, the things you have control over, those are easy. It's what's around the corner that you really need to have that prayer for. Lord, give me the wisdom. Give me the wisdom so that when that phone call comes, I know what to do. Because most of the times we're, we're trying to get a hold of our emotions. We're trying to get our bearings together. And, and we don't know what to do. So it's really cool to pray, Lord, when that wheel starts to spin and that ship is just taken to and fro, Lord, give me the wisdom to know what to do in those situations. In, in, the, in the field of law enforcement, when we do room entries and we go into a house and we have to, uh, you know, get the bad guys who are holed up with a gun, you know what they teach us? They drill us, entries, entries, it's what's around the corner. That's what they teach us for, because the person around the corner with the gun waiting for the cop to come through, he's got the drop on you. Action is faster than reaction. What they teach us to do is to be prepared constantly, you know, repetition, repetition for what's around the corner. Now, in the spiritual sense, only God knows what's around the corner. We really can't prepare for it unless we're in prayer. Verse, verse 16. There's a situation here with the skiff. A skiff is a little boat used uh, in a primitive attempt for tacking, if you're understanding what, uh, you know, seafaring in nautical terms, but tacking is, is uh, something that they do now with technology, but it's almost, you can get the ship to go in a zigzag uh, pattern to beat the headwinds and, and, and going right into the storm. Well, what's happening is this little skiff that's tied to ropes or chains to the big boat is starting to fill up with water. And the problem with that is, if the skiff now is waterlogged, remember, seven pounds per gallon. Uh, water weighs seven pounds per gallon. So the skiff is filling up with all these uh, gallons of water, and if the skiff comes right back towards the boat during the storm, it could put a, a hole in the hull, which is the side of the boat. Or the skiff could sink and start to cause the, the ship to list. I learned all these really cool nautical terms while I was studying this. <laughs> the prow, the stern, starboard, port side. No, starboard, port side. Okay. Got it. So this is what's going on here. But again, and not to overdo the analogies, but in our lives, sometimes we have those skiffs. Sometimes we have those little skiffs that are starting to fill up with water. It could be something about our personality. It could be something that we haven't given up to the Lord. It could be unconfessed sin. And if we don't deal with that skiff, it's going to run right into our boat and put a hole in the side and damage us. It could be something about us that's self-destructive, right? In our society... So many people are self-destructive. They have self-destructive habits. Whether this gift is coming towards your hull or whether it's sinking and causing you to list and drag you down, that's what it's doing. It's dragging you down. So what is it about our life that we could either cut away or pull back into the boat and say, you know what, I'm going to get a handle on this. It's something to think about. Verse 17. There was something going on called bandings. Now, banding was when the... The ships back then were made of long planks and they were put together and, uh, you know, they would put pitch or tar on the outside to help it kind of waterproof it. And again, for the most part, those ships were made entirely out of wood. Now, banding is something that, again, they're wooden planks. They're subject to breakage. In some of these violent storms, water has a lot of force to it. Okay, when the, when the, the boat is getting pounded and the, the boat is going up and down out of the water. So what they would do is they would take these long ropes or chains and put them over the, the front of the boat and start slowly bringing them down to the bottom of the boat. 
And then they would, you know, several succession of, uh, of chains in a transverse fashion, right, perpendicular. And then they would anchor them onto the top of the deck. And what it would do is it would help to hold the planks together. So when the, when the waves came and the, the ship was up and down in the water, hopefully those planks didn't come apart and have a breach in the hull and cause the ship to sink. So there's a lot, of, a lot going on here. We can read the Bible so quickly. But you know what? That's why God tells us to meditate on the Word of God, because there's so much in here. So this is what's going on. The question is, how many times in your life have you tried by your own means to ban your own life? There's a problem in your life, and you're trying by your own means, whether it's the ropes or the chains and transverse and, you know, all hands on the deck, pull this thing up. We have to hold it together. I have to hold it together. Well, I've let go of the wheel. My course is unknown, but at the very least, I'm going to undergird those planks. All I can say is this. If your life isn't God-centered, you can try the, all the banding you want. You can try till you're blue in the face and exhausted. But if your life isn't God-centered, it's only going to be a matter of time. It may, t- may not be tomorrow, may not be next year, may not be for 10 years. It's only a matter of time before those planks are going to start to come apart. And if you're getting by without the Lord up until this point, God bless you. <laughs> but you know what? It's only a matter of time. And worse yet, even if you get through life without the Lord, you have to face the judgment. So all the banding that we try to do, you know, I, I just wonder sometimes. I just see a lot of people doing damage control. Verse 20, it says, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, that was a way of saying we were getting hammered. Uh, All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Hopeless condition. Back then, the sun and the stars were used for navigation. Now we we have fancy equipment. So if the sun and the stars you couldn't see and it was overcast and it was very stormy, you had a problem, okay? It indicates a hopeless condition. We lost all hope of being saved. Man, those are words I don't want to hear. (laughs) That's an awful thing to say. They got the expert advice from the captain way back when, and it got them nowhere. And now their guiding luminaries are gone. Hopeless. When all worldly worldly helps are gone and the indicators are gone, you have no choice but to trust the Lord. And sometimes the Lord, we get upset with the Lord. You know, why am I in this position? Why am I in this position? Because you need to learn to trust me. And when you get through that situation and you look back, you realize why things happened the way they happened. Uh, interesting story. I had a, um, I had a, was it yesterday or the day, bef- the day before? I was the station officer in a, in a police station. And a fellow officer brought in a prisoner for a, a crime he committed. And the officer said, will you watch him while I go do the paperwork? I said, sure. So I sat with the guy. The guy starts talking to me like he's known me for 20 years. Never met him before, right? And he's, he's asking me about my life. And I'm like, yeah, Lord's really blessed me. I got a good life. And he's asking me all these questions. And then he's saying, well, well how do you do it? Well, how do you hold your life together? And, uh, you know, because I'm a, an agent of the government, I'm not supposed to proselytize. So I... <laughs> what? What are you talking about? What are you upset about? So I don't. You know, it's a violation of church and state. But, you know, he asked me some questions and he said to me, you know, he asked me some really good questions. Now, as police officers, you don't want to get complaints and have your, your, your record tarnished. And if I was rude to him and I didn't answer him, he might have complained about me. So I felt I had no choice but to answer his questions. And by the way, that's legal. Um, seriously, <laughs> if you're a public school teacher, if a student asks you and takes the first step to ask you about your faith, you can answer them. But you're not supposed to be the one who 
does it first. So anyway, he asked me a question. I didn't want to be rude, and I answered his questions. But the funny thing is he was, you know, talking, and we were talking, and uh, really good conversation. Talked about the Lord, talked about my marriage, talked about a lot of things. And uh, it's like he wanted that. But he was, a, it was a problem. He didn't believe in God. He believed in evolution. And he started arguing with me. So I said, listen, I said, who's under arrest and who's free? <laughs> so he said, well, you know, I'm under arrest. I said, did I bother you when I sat with you or did you ask me the first questions? He goes, well, I asked you the first question. He goes, okay, I get what you're saying. I'll, I'll be good. But what I noticed is, getting to the, the, the moral of the story, is if I would have met this guy in the supermarket and I would have talked to him about the Lord and I was off duty, he would have laughed at me. He would have probably thought I was an idiot or, or boorish or archaic. But you know what? The Lord had him in a humble place. So he was now at that point where he was desperate. He was nervous. He was desperate. And he asked me questions. So the Lord had him right where he needed him. And you know what? I believe that some of those things that we spoke about really stuck in his head. Only time will tell. But again, when all worldly helps are gone and, and you know, you're trying to, to ban the ship and you're trying all these things and nothing is working and the Lord allows you to be in a humble place, then you'll receive more, won't you? Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I like that. And, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of, of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, this is kind of humorous because Paul really is, in essence, saying, I told you so. <laughs> now, for you singles out, out there, this is a common phrase used by husbands and wife, I told you so. But Paul was either very bold or he just reminded them of his prior warning so they, they would listen this time. And I believe that was the case. I believe that he wasn't saying, I told you so, except for the fact that, listen, I was right before the Lord spoke to me. You have to pay attention. This, this is for your life that you need to pay attention. And verse 23 through 26, Paul was fearless because Paul believed in the promises of God. He got it. He caught the bug and he shared it with others. One of the best witnesses to others is when you exude your trust in the Lord, when you exude that strong faith. Like that guy sitting next to me. <laughs> it's not, bro, it's not that my life is easy. I don't have an easy life, especially doing this job. But, but God is with me, and, and God stands by my side. And God, I never, I never, ever since I've been a Christian, I've always sensed his presence. I've always known he's been with me. So just like Paul, one of the best witnesses to other people is when you exude not in arrogance, we shouldn't be arrogant as Christians, but that faith, that faith and trust in the Lord. Verse 23, Paul says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. That's a powerful testimony. A world with no hope will finally listen to you, Christian, when times get rough. And that's why you're here. You're here to be built up in God's word. And you may say, but I don't know what my gifts are, but you know, and I'm, I'm kind of shy to speak in front of people. Right now, in church, you're, you're to be built up. You're supposed to be edified with the Word of God. So when God chooses you, chooses you and you're by yourself, and he says, okay, now's the time. I've got it for you. You know, Herm, this person wants to hear from you. He's got a question for you. You know, 
because you've been built up and you've been strengthened and you're helping that world. You know, you're being salt and light to a world that's rotting and decaying. Again, anytime you just want to click on the news, no matter what news you look at, it's a mess out there. The crimes are getting worse. The juvenile crimes are getting worse. The Middle East is a mess. Gas prices are going to keep going up. Food's going to keep going up. And you know what? There's going to be people who, people who are going to finally be humbled and be ready to listen to hear what you have to say. How do you do it? If that's not an open door, I don't know what is. Verse 27. But when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, or 120 feet. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms, or 90 feet. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Um, Sort of like a breaking device. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So there was a little plan, uh, I guess, either the prisoners or some of the guys that were there just wanted to get off the boat. You know, they were going to put the skiff in the water and take off. And Paul, of course, sensed this was going on. And he advised the centurions, listen, this is what God says. Everybody needs to stay in the boat. Unless you remain in the ship, you cannot be saved. This is a picture of salvation. Because unless you remain in Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Only under his blood and under his protection. If, in Leviticus 17.11, uh, God says, back, way back in the law, he said that without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sins. And we know that that looked to Jesus Christ. Unless you're covered under the blood, you cannot be saved. The Passover, right? Only the people who were saved were the ones that took the, the brush and put it in the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel. And they were saved. Only if you remain in this house under this blood can you be saved, right? You see that. Only under the Levitical sacrifices, if you remain under them, can you be saved. Running away and going in any other direction other than his can only mean certain destruction. Remaining in the ship tossed uh, with an unsecure course of direction can be a good thing. It shows that you trust him and attest your faith. And to obtain his promises, we must abide by his conditions. I love that about God. He's conditional. Uh, it's not like Burger King faith. You know, have it your way. Yeah, whatever I do... God's going to smile. Hey, I love you. You're my kid. I don't care what you do. Go ahead, sin, have fun. It's not that way. It's conditional. In the Old Testament, he spoke to the children of Israel and said, if you remain in me and you love me as a wife loves her husband in a spiritual sense, if you you follow after me and you're true to me and you don't follow after all the Canaanite gods around you, things are going to go well with you. Your land is going to be well. Your borders will be secured. Your children will be safe. But God said, if... You stray from me and you go after the Canaanite gods and you start taking your children and sacrificing them in the fire like those crazy people do over there uh, who sacrifice their kids to Molech. And you leave me and you depart from me. You're going to be invaded. Your land's not going to do well. Your children aren't going to be safe. And we say, well, that's kind of mean of God. Well, he's God. He can make that kind of statement. But the point is that he's doing it for our own good. Just like a parent who lets their kids do whatever they want. They become brats. When they get older, they're unmarriable. Nobody wants to marry them because they're very selfish and self-centered. And nobody wants to employ them. So you've just ruined your child by, by spoiling them. And God won't do that with the people that he loves. He won't do that with us. Okay? And here it's conditional. 
unless you remain in the ship, this is my condition, you collectively cannot be saved. He's a conditional God. Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as it was, as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from, your, from the head of any of you. I think that's where I wanted to go. Okay. No, it's not where I wanted to go. I'm going to keep going. Um, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. Now when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let the anchors go and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosening the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. Again, more of a, um, an old braking device to, to stop the boat from really slamming into wherever they were going. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow, which was the front of the ship, struck fast and remained immovable. So it takes a nosedive and it's stuck. And the stern was being broken up, or the the stern was the back, was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Now the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to the land. A few things. Um, Paul really takes charge here. In the beginning of the trip, they said, ah, he's some religious teacher, you know, whatever. You guys are the experts. This is the way we're going to go. Paul, just be quiet. You know, take good care of you. Just sit over there. Now, all of a sudden, towards the end of the the trip, Paul really becomes in charge. He's telling these people what to do, right? Uh, And the whole thing with the Roman soldiers, their instinct was to kill the prisoners. And that would have been a lot of bloodshed. But Roman law said if you were a, a, a guard, if you were a Roman guard, a military person, uh, trusted to keep charge of these prisoners, and any of them escaped, Rome could take your life. And it, wouldn't have been, it would have been a dishonorable death. So, uh, of course, the Roman soldiers probably took out their swords and were looking to slay these people. And uh, they were stopped by Julius. In closing, again, I had a lot of fun with this. I learned a bunch of nautical terms and certainly wove a few cliches, you know, in there. It's kind of neat. But my question is, number one, by a show of hands, has anybody ever been seasick? Anybody? Wow, a lot of seasick people. <laughs> I, I've been. Question two, has anybody ever been shipwrecked? In the military, anybody? No? Okay. Missions trip? Um, at the very least, has anybody ever seen Deadliest Catch? How many people? <laughs> it's a good show with the, the crab fishermen. I mean, shh, I mean, seeing that, I don't want to go out there. But, you know, they had it pretty bad on these shows. And, you know, if you've been seasick, maybe you had it rough. But remember, you go on anything modern, you have modern navigation, sonar, communication, technology, etc. Now compare that with ancient times. And I want, to, I want to kind of act it out a little bit. First, you have a storm. It's quiet. You know, maybe it's a nice day. It probably wasn't overcast so they could navigate. They, they set out to sail. Now a storm comes. First the winds, then the waves. Now the boat is starting to rock. Okay? 
water's coming up over the, over the side onto the deck, getting people wet. At that time of the year, it would have been cold. So now they're cold. It's stormy. No doubt, even the best of the sailors were getting seasick from the constant motion. Add that to, uh, and again, we start to see a lot of physical exertion here. They're pulling the skiff up. They're banding the ship. Now they're really working hard. Um, no doubt people were vomiting. You know, let's just be real here. Uh, anything that has to come out is going to come out. You don't have any time to go to the men's room, all right? So this is what's happening. Hunger sets in, okay? Hours turn into days. Days turn into weeks, okay? So after 14 days, Paul starts to talk to them about trying to get something to eat. Hunger, maybe even depression, you know? Oh, this is miserable. I'd rather just die. I mean, this is just an awful situation here. What about fear? You know that in those days, those who weren't convinced, and I'm sure Paul witnessed to a lot of them, uh, in those days, there was a belief that if you were on the seas and there was a great storm that came up, it's a good possibility the gods were angry with you. In addition to that, if you died at sea, not only were you going to die a miserable death, but the gods would torment you for eternity. So you really, really have to take all this into account when you look at the story. You really have to inject yourself into this passage and see what these men were going through. Um, a lot of things going on there. But the question is, why did Dr. Luke go into so much detail about maritime excursions. And my, my belief is that the Holy Spirit wanted it that way. Because no doubt woven into this message is the fact that we all have storms in our lives, don't we? Does anybody, raise your hand. Anybody not have, ever have a storm in their life? You have to be really young if that's the case. At times we all get battered by the waves and run aground on the sandbars. At times, sometimes we feel like we're this close to being shipwrecked. But truly, if God is sovereign... We know that he hasn't taken us this far to just be done with us and let us go. I don't care about you anymore. He loves us. No matter what our children do, we, we, we always love them, right? Our love always goes with them. What are some of the storms in your life? I ask that question. Everybody has something that comes to the front. What are the storms in your life? The usual suspects come to mind. Finances, right? New Jersey's getting harder and harder to live in. We've lost several families and from this fellowship because they couldn't make it in New Jersey, moved elsewhere. And that's tough. Moving, that's a tough thing. Um, relationships. Who doesn't have some type of relationship issue with somebody that you're struggling with? Health. Sunday to Sunday, I get prayer lists constantly, prayer requests. I don't know one week that goes by that I don't get an email from somebody that got hurt or sick or is going for surgery. Everybody runs into those problems. Your kids' futures. What about the storms, now that we also have some teens sitting in here, what about the storms some of you teens face? Your storms are just as legitimate as my storms at 40 years old. You know? What about the future? What's this world going to be like when I grow up? Maybe relationship issues. Maybe you're in school and you don't know what to do when you get out of school. When I was in college, I changed my major about six times. Now, I don't recommend that, but I didn't know what to do. I was confused. What do I want to do with my life, right? Um... Peer pressure, some of you teens, I have friends who call themselves Christians and they're trying to get me to do things I shouldn't do. Something illegal, smoke weed, have sex, whatever it is, right? It, it, it's a possibility. So your storms are just as, as, as real as my storms and everybody else's storms here. And the question is, why do we have storms in our life? Well, number one is to reveal character. It's to reveal character and it's also to build character. Show me a person who's never struggled in their whole life. Mommy and daddy have taken care of them and pampered them from very little. And they become an adult. And they have no storms in their life. I'll show you someone who's this shallow, right here. And if you're that shallow and you want God to use you, 
be prepared because the storms are coming because he's got to build that character in you. He's got to weed out the things that he doesn't want in you and, and, to, and to test you like fine gold and make you come out pure like those pure ingots. The second thing that storms uh, do is they test our faith. And not so God says, God says, well, I don't know if he has any faith. Let me do this to him and see if he has faith. God already knows the outcome. A lot of times the testing of our faith is for our own benefit. As we come through those storms in life, we see that, wow, I really did believe in him. I really did cling to him. My times with him were rough, but, but I really did have that faith. And three, storms are one of the best tutors in life. It's, they, they talk about book smart and experience smart. The best teacher, even in the police academy, you know, they taught you all this stuff. My first day out on patrol, I didn't know what I was doing. But I was in the academy for almost a year. I don't know what I'm doing. Because experience is the best teacher. You can read all the books you want, but until you actually go through that actual experience, that's the one that's going to teach you, right? But take courage. We know that we can always turn to Jesus. In, in Mark 4, um, 39, 38, uh, we know that Jesus slept during the storm in the boat. And the disciples shook him and woke him up and said, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? <laughs> they're talking to the Son of God. Well, if they're going to die, well, where does that leave him, right? Don't you care, Master, that we were perishing? So he gets up and he says to the storm, peace, be still. Now, literally in the Greek, I looked it up. He says, be muzzled. And I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, shut up, sit down, and relax, right? With, with, with a wave of a hand and with a word, the winds calmed down, the seas were calmed down, and everything was serene again because our Lord has that power. With friends like that, we may go through storms. I'm not going to stand up here. This isn't a seeker-friendly church. I'm not going to stand up here and say, you're not going to have problems as a Christian. I am not going to do that because I'd be lying to you. I don't care how much faith you have, you're still going to have storms in your life. But we may go through the storms in life, but we never have to fear the storms. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word. We thank you.